But uh, without any further delay, we are on episode number 14. Today, we've got Frank Lam, uh, someone that uh, many of you may recognize from the community, very involved in the automation space. Uh, Frank, and you do a, a number of things besides, you know, systems integration. You have your own company. You train people. You have written books. Uh, you also have your own podcast slash show every Friday where people can join, ask questions. You've had some very interesting guests, some of which, uh, you know, I've also uh, kind of viewed. Um, but we'll, we'll get into that. Like, I guess I want to get more details out of you, like what prompted you to start that, but just involved are all around. And I think that that's very admirable that you're trying to, you know, probably have an angle on many of these things and you've tried things, you've succeeded in many of them. So we'll, we'll talk about that for sure. But I think it's very, very cool. And, you know, for, for what it is, like I look up to you for, you know, someone who's been through this journey in many different facets and want to learn from you. And I'm hoping that some of our listeners too will have questions. They, uh, they want to learn either how to, you know, build your career, expand your career, get into all sorts of different things when it comes to automation, manufacturing. And so without any further delay, if you want to give us like a, a short introduction or a, a long one, if you'd like, uh, of what you're currently doing and what have you been involved in in the past? Okay, well, I'll give you a little bit of my, my background. I was a, a very poor student in school. And uh, so after diddling around for a few years, I joined the Air Force and it was probably the smartest thing I ever did. Uh, I learned electronics and oddly enough, my first job in the Air Force after I graduated electronics school was teaching electronics. And so they put me through an instructor school and they kind of taught me how to create a lesson plan, even though we already had canned lesson plans and things like that. But they kind of put me through what it takes to, to teach classes. Um, I did that for a few years and then ended up uh, doing engineering and installation around the world. And I met my wife in Japan, which was another really good move. Um, after I got married, she said, well, you need to go to college. You, you know, you've been doing this military stuff, but I don't want to be a military wife. So uh, I left the Air Force and I moved here to Tennessee and I went to the University of Tennessee as a 30-year-old freshman, uh, which is a kind of a, a different kind of thing to be doing too. And this was about 31 years ago. Um, got my electrical engineering degree in the typical four years and uh, went to work for a couple distributors selling products. And at that time, PLCs were... Um, my first PLC was the Eagle Signal Micro 190. It was all DOS-based. So I used the DOS programming software and uh, uh, that kind of thing. Then I got into Omron and Allen Bradley, but they were handheld controllers or the big TV screen things on the carts. And you, you would program them that way, basically. Um, I didn't do a lot with them uh, for the distributor and the, uh, the controls company that I worked for. I mostly sold components, right? But then when I hired in with the Allen Bradley distributor, they made me a product specialist. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how many people know how Allen Bradley's distributors work, but they, they force the distributors to hire engineers. So there is a PLC specialist and there is a motion control specialist. You will always have at least those two people in every distributorship, right? That's part of having that distributorship. And then they have reserved territories. Well, at that time, they were saying, we need a third specialist. Uh, and that covers everything except for PLCs and, uh, and drives and things like that. And so part of my product um, 
area was vision systems. At that time, Alan Bradley had machine vision. Uh, they had something called the Pyramid Integrator. I don't know if you remember that, but it was a PLC5 platform. And so you could tie your, your vision system into uh, the PLC5 and you could do very rudimentary SCADA and things like that. Well, um, you know, I was kind of on commission and, and doing sales at the same time as being a product specialist, got tired of it, decided, you know what, I'm going to start building control panels and doing small programs for people in my area. And of course, since I was in a lot of the plants, people would say, you know, you used to come by here and, and sell us Omron, and now you're an Allen Bradley rep, but we're all Omron. So we can't buy your Allen Bradley PLCs, but you know what? If you build us a box, we don't care what's inside of the box. So if you put an uh, Allen Bradley PLC or whatever you want to, we just need something that, for instance, detects the little notch on a compressor hub. I had to do that one time, and it would turn it to the little notch and then stop there and they would, uh, you know, mark it and things like that and then pass it on. So I got into doing those little projects out of my garage. Um, after I had done enough of those little projects, little tiny things, I said, you know, I think I can do this uh, on my own and I'll, I'm just going to go into business for myself. So I collected three or four jobs up and I said, okay, it's time to go working out of my garage. I was very busy doing this stuff and I thought maybe I need help. I'm going to move into an office and hire somebody. Terrible idea. Do not start a company that way. All right. So I hired a guy. We were very busy for a couple months. And then all of a sudden I was so busy doing these little jobs. I didn't have any more jobs. Right. So I have a guy, I have an office and I have no work. So immediately I started kind of running up credit cards. Right. I, I have to pay for the office. I have to pay for myself. Bad idea overall. Right. Um, I did find more jobs. I ended up teaming up with a, a custom machine builder in Knoxville, Tennessee. Uh, he built packaging machines. He had started his company very close to when I did. And uh, we kind of grew together. So the first guy I hired became a second guy. Then I started hiring guys at ITT Tech and uh, doing controls projects for him, right? While I was doing that, he built all his machines out of extrusion. And he figured out, oh, Frank does vision systems, engaging machines, things like that. Maybe we should start doing that too. And he started selling to the local automotive customers. Then uh, probably six years into doing that, he decided I'm tired of doing all these custom jobs and I only want to build packaging machines. So he got out of the gauging and vision system job and I got into it. And since I'd learned how to do the extrusion stuff from him, I started building frames out of extrusion putting cameras in them, PLCs, gauging equipment, LVDTs, whatever it was, and doing measuring for the local automotive plant. So that's kind of how I got into machine building. Um, it got bigger and bigger. I hired a machinist. I was still in debt. I'd you know, taken the credit cards, and I, I think I ran them up to some amount, and that was my running capital thing. I had a $50,000 debt. No matter how large I grew the company, I had about 50 grand in debt which was uh, probably, like I said, not, not a good way to start it. But I did that for um, 10 years. I had that, that company, autom the original automation consulting services out of Knoxville, and we became a decent-sized machine builder. But eventually it got very big, very capital-intensive, and I found myself not doing what I like to do, which is programming and designing machines. Instead, I was supervising other people programming and designing machines, right, and selling which I, I still don't like doing and I'm not particularly good at. So um, in 2006, I closed that company, moved here to Nashville. 
and I went to work for a big machine builder called Wright Industries. Um, mm -hmm. They're now JR Automation. So some people may be familiar with JR. They're one of the bigger machine builders in the country. Uh, do a lot of automotive and uh, pharmaceutical and government jobs and whatever, and they buy up other companies. And then another big company bought them up. So Hitachi now owns JR Automation. Okay. Um, big mall, I think they have 24 branches or something like that all over the United States in different places. Uh, I did that until 2012. I went back out on my own, same company name, this little logo here, Automation Consulting, but instead of uh, services, it was a LLC. And I, I made a deal with my wife. Uh, she said, do not hire people again because all you're gonna be doing is chasing people. And I said, good deal, that's what I'll do. Um, I contracted for a couple years and then all of a sudden uh, I, had an opportunity to go teach a PLC class contract for a Canadian company. They kind of cold turkey sent me the book, sent me out to North Carolina and said, teach this slick class. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go do that. You know, read the book, said, I, I can wing this. They send all these suitcases out, ship them to a, a hotel out there. I go out and meet the suitcases and the laptops at the hotel, teach the class. And it turned out to be pretty fun. So, uh, 2013, 2014, 2015, I kind of grew and started doing more and more of that and less and less of the contracting and, and design work. And by about 2015, that was probably 70% of my work, but I spent 37 weeks out of 52 weeks out of town traveling. Um, it was fun. I got to go some cool places, went to Haiti and Trinidad and all over the US and Canada, and they'd send you wherever, right? Some good places, some not so good places, right? But a lot of times that's what it is. You go to a hotel or you go to a plant and you teach a canned PLC class. Uh, it's four days long if it's Control Logics or Siemens. It's three days long if it's a Slick class or a Wonderware class. Um, I think uh, the HMI class is Factory Talk View or three days long and they're the same class pretty much every time. What's not the same is the students, right? Sometimes you'll get maintenance guys and what do maintenance guys want to learn? They want to learn troubleshooting. Um, so troubleshooting, normally you would think it's a multimeter, it's looking at the lights on the PLC, it's not programming the PLC. As a matter of fact, you get into some places like pharmaceutical and you can't program the PLC. You can't right. change validated software. So every class was different. But I found that as I, like if you teach oil and gas guys, you have to learn their language, right? They're, they're talking uh, giant pumps and pipelines and all process control stuff. We have, have had this discussion about P&IDs. Uh, they live and die by their P&IDs, right? Then you go to an automotive plant and they've never heard of P&IDs. They say, PID, PID control? No, different, different animal. So they have no clue what it is. So you have to learn the language of the people that you're teaching to, but I found it, anyway from that way back when I was in the Air Force, I'd segue back into training, you know, full circle. It's 30 years later, uh, maybe more than that, right? When I start teaching these classes and I found, you know, I really like teaching. Uh, I get a lot out of it. I enjoy talking to students. And then 2016, I said, I think I can make my own class instead of contracting to automation training. So I built a training facility. And some of the pictures that you see up on the walls here or on my website are like, I had a big fake factory in this training facility and it had a dial table and cameras on it and little uh, escapements that would drop balls into things. And, and you could just do a lot of different things with it. 
And the original company I contracted to was one of my guests on my webinar. It's called Automation NTH. Uh, don't know if you guys are familiar with them. Pretty good sized company. They're coming up on 100 engineers at this point. Um, local here, and they do a lot of work for pharmaceutical, automotive, and right industries, right? So they send their engineers to the local machine builders, uh, ATC, uh, which is Automation Tool. They're another real big machine builder in the area. Uh, Nissan, Bridgestone, those, those are some of their customers. But something interesting, they started an internal program called NTH University. So NTH University takes interns from school and teaches them the way that NTH does things. And they need content. So the books that I'd written um, in 2013 was my first book, Industrial Automation Hands-On. They use that as the core of their basic uh, automation training after students get out of college. So the, all the little basic things, uh, the pneumatics and things that you don't learn in, in college, right? It kind of added some of that stuff. Um, so I started creating content for them, wrote another book in 2019 on PLCs, started teaching my own classes out of my facility. And then a year ago, I think we've talked about this before, a big tornado came through Tennessee and my office was dead center. It was ground zero, uh, which is only a mile and a half from my house, took the office out, destroyed most of the equipment. Uh, I was able to rescue some laptops, things like that. Um, but of course, then COVID hit two weeks later. So all of a sudden, all this training stuff that I was doing traveling around the country certainly ended. The training out of my own facility ended because of COVID. Um, so I found myself very quickly having to pivot. What I decided to do is, hey, I'm good at writing books. I'm going to create more content. So I started creating videos only about a year ago and doing something that Vlad's done, which is PLC videos. But I found pretty quickly there, it takes a long time to create videos and I don't have years to do it. So I started kind of winging it. I created one formal video with actual tests and quizzes and things. And then I started just, you know what, I'm going to start a program and I'm going to just start adding routines to it and simulating things and getting crazy with wild programming and, you know, uh, simulate vision systems, use random number generators to do things. It's, it's pretty fun. Uh, NTH has kind of gotten wind of that. And so this week, for instance, I'm teaching a class for NTH specifically on simulation. It's those interns. They come in here. I've got four of them this week. And, uh, and we use the control logics and we make things happen. And so today we wrote an add-on instruction for uh, a servo indexer. And it turned out to be pretty tough. I don't think we're quite there yet, but it accelerates, moves a distance, decelerates, and you have to coordinate all the timers and things that make it seem like it's doing that and all the pulse counts, right? The, the mm -hmm. position, you have to watch the position go up, ramp up, and then go to speed and then ramp down and all that. So we're building these add-ons that we can kind of use as a library, send them back to uh, Automation NTH, and then the next simulation class, we'll use that add-on, maybe create another one. Uh, and create the back end of it. So that's kind of where I'm at right now um, is creating content for things like that. And I have this automation academy thing, nothing like what Vlad has with the big Solus PLC, but uh, a lot of my students have joined that. And what I do is I put all my material on there. I put all the uploads and uh, paper uploads and video, all those videos I was telling you about, put those there in a little community and a little how to find a job kind of section. Uh, and so I'm kind of pushing all that because I have to be online. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take to get back to 
traveling across the country and teaching PLCs, but I, I think it's segueing to this. I haven't quite gotten to where I can teach people remotely, right? Uh, automation training does that. They'll they'll have people log into their computers. They use WebEx, and you remotely drive their their uh, computers. But I think that takes maybe more bandwidth and more software than I currently have. So I I don't have a way to for people to remote desktop in connect to a real PLC or a simulator and then walk up to the laptop and help them, which is kind of the way they do that remote training. So I'm not there yet, uh, which only now has videos and, and uh, in-person classes, which, you know, I don't do the eight people at a time much anymore. Sometimes it's one or two people at a time. So, so I'm kind of having to segue to this video stuff. And that's kind of where I'm at now. And I do still do integration. Um, I've kept one big customer down in Miami and I go down there, five or six times a year and a uh, big playground. That's another guest I've had on my podcast. So that's kind of my life history and kind of where I'm at. Um, Frank, before we throw a question at you, um, I want to mention on Friday, you're getting the students to come on your podcast and there's going to be a, a live um, show, I guess, that people can also join. Can you give us some more information as to sure. what time, how do they uh, join and I'll, I'll post a link to your profile. I guess that would be the easiest way to find uh, all of that. Sure. So this, it's every two weeks, not every week. Uh, it's called Mastering the Machine. And that site that I created, I kind of joined this other thing called the Membership Academy. And they said, you know, if you have a website, you need to do live events. And so I said, okay, every other week I'll do a live event. Um, I've had Dave and Vlad as guests on, interviewed mm -hmm. them, talked to them about their history, kind of like we're doing here. Um, had a variety of people and this is the first time that you know I teach these classes pretty often but this one happened to land on an NTH class that I'm teaching so uh, it's on the last day of the class the students started yesterday four-day class we're doing simulations of uh, I don't know if you'll be able to see this picture this system mm -hmm. so yeah I drew this up for them and I said okay this is what we're going to simulate it's an Xing thing with a bunch of fillers and a robot and uh, we're simulating all that. It's at 10 o'clock this Friday. Uh, it is called the Mastering the Machine webinar. Uh, been doing them every two weeks since the end of November. Mm -hmm. um, 10 o'clock Central, just to. 10 o'clock Central time, 11 o'clock Eastern time. Uh, I do post all kinds of links on LinkedIn. Uh, I have a little email that goes out to people that subscribe to my stuff. Uh, I have uh, automationllc.com if you. If you see anything there where you can enter your name in and do a download, that kind of puts you on my email list if you're interested. Um, and and those people, the about the only emails I send out are links to uh, to that webinar. That's pretty much the only real live, consistent thing I do. And what I found is like when I'm in Miami, uh, I just do a live show from Miami and I interview the owner of the plant. Or I I think on the next one I'll be there in mid June. And I, I would like to just find a way to take my phone and we were talking about recording things and just walk up with a phone and talk about all the different machinery and things around the plant. That would be pretty cool because they have every kind of machine you can think of process control and, you know, servo stuff and palletizers and fillers and box erectors and, you know, uh, bottle fillers, bottle blowers. It'd be kind of neat to do that. I'm sure I could fill an hour with it, but um, yeah, every, every other Friday, this Friday, uh, and I'll just put the links on, on LinkedIn. And uh, I think, 
I don't think you guys have the link yet. I did post it the other day, but uh, you're not on my email list. So I do email that out every, I think, m the Monday before the webinars. Yeah. Right. Frank, I want to, um, I have a, a question. Uh, so I picked up during, I guess, your introduction, a very, um, how to say it, like intriguing point, right? Which is tied into automation sales. So you started off in sales, right? For a distributor, obviously, like as a technical expert as well. And in my mind, I guess those skill sets are somewhat complementary, but often very difficult to master for engineers, um, especially or for myself, right? So I'm, I guess I'm curious your thoughts on, um, you know, the importance of understanding sales from like an engineering standpoint and how would someone in a technical position would go about learning those skills, right? Because as you mentioned, if you want to even transition into running your own business, whether it is like consulting or distributing these parts, it becomes very difficult because it's a balance between executing the work, but also getting the new projects in before you run out. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Uh, on that. So my first job out of college, and the only reason I took it was because I didn't want to leave Knoxville. And I took a job, um, oddly enough, with a future engineering manager for one of the machine builders that I was working at. But I took over his job. And he worked for a very, very small controls. Somebody coined the term disreputor. And it was because they were a distributor of some products, but they were a manufacturer's rep for other products. One of the methods that the owner of this company used to get sales would he, was he would take like these micro 190 controllers and he'd say, um, this is a PLC. It will replace the relays and things that you're currently using. It has timers in it and things like that. If you need help uh, putting this together and making your stuff work, we'll do that for you. We'll help you sell it. So I very quickly learned, I guess my method was help the customer solve a problem and you will sell the products. So uh, he gave me a list of existing accounts and he also said, feel free to break any new accounts that you want to. So what I would do is if I'm in an area, uh, at that time you could cold call. So you could just walk into the lobby of the plant and say, I wanna talk to uh, the manufacturing engineer or the engineering manager or whatever. Sometimes you'd get the cold shoulder, which is tough. You know, People are saying no. And sometimes you'd get, um, they'd say, sure, let me see if he's in, especially small companies, right? The small companies, the guy'd walk out after a while and he'd say, oh, sure, what do you got there? You know, they had, if they had extra time or whatever it is. Uh, some of the existing customers, we would have like, uh, I remember one of them was Marka, which is Matsushita Refrigeration. You'd get the, you know, I'd get the name of the, uh, the maintenance supervisor. And I, you know, first call, I'd go in there and say, can I speak to Jerry? And, you know, talk to Jerry a little bit. And he'd start telling me a little bit of what they do. And some people would take you on a tour of the plant. So all of a sudden, you see opportunities to sell things. Hey, you could, you know, did you know we sell these photo eyes? We have a really cool photo eye with a little bar graph on the side that tells you how much light's coming back, you know? Um, so I spent probably my first uh, maybe two weeks or three weeks simply reading all the catalogs. I think the catalogs are the best way to learn about products and how they work and all that kind of stuff. Even if you're already an engineer, right? Just get a hold. And these were only paper catalogs. There wasn't a worldwide web. So I just read all the specs for everything and I got a hold of the physical products and I'd look at them and how they connect to things and maybe wire them up to something or whatever, and then go out and 
bring physical products and go show them to people. Um, that was easy with a small company like that. Um, that was fun. I didn't make any money doing it. So then I went to work for the Allen Bradley distributor. Um, that was a whole different thing. You had an assigned list of accounts and Allen Bradley, uh, you have reserved areas. So if somebody's going to buy Allen Bradley, they're going to buy them from you. It's mm -hmm. their only choice. They're going to buy it. At that time, it was something called road and electric. Um, and I started out kind of as a salesperson, but they quickly said, well, we don't really have enough accounts to make you a full salesperson. So we're going to create this product specialist position since you like reading catalogs. And they sent me up to uh, Milwaukee and I you know, took all their, their classes, including the PLC classes. And I saw how they uh, made the products and I watched them blow things up, right? You'd take drives and they would stress test the drives until they exploded in a room. That was kind really? of neat. That's, oh, yeah. that's pretty yeah. cool. Hmm. Yeah, neat stuff. Uh, you know, what, what happens when you put, uh, you know, 1200 volts on this 480 volt drive? Well, right. boom, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that was kind of neat. And I did that, like I said, for only a couple of years. And I was, I was in the same geographical area that the previous company I was in. So I'm calling on a lot of the same customers. And that's where that, uh, that story of, gosh, you were selling Omron a year ago, and now you're selling Alan Bradley, and we don't use Alan Bradley. And I was like, well, but you're, you're the customer that I knew back then. So I'm, that's why I'm coming to see you, you know, and say mm -hmm. hi. And that's where I started picking up some of those little side jobs. Um, I think, you know, if, if you come straight out of college and you can learn the products, it's a really quick segue from learning what the products do to actually using them to putting them together and putting them in a plant, right? Uh, using the BFDs, using the PLCs. At that time, they were all slicks and, you know, micro, uh, the Micrologics had just come out. So it's it kind of early on in the PLC. PLC five still been out for a while. Which still takes quite a bit of time, I guess, to learn, I, I would say. And so, like, I, I'd be curious to, I guess, maybe understand a little bit better as someone who trains people on a, on a regular basis. Like, what do you what do you see that specific industry transforming into? And what I mean by that is, you know, you've got your traditional classes that I still think are very important, right? Like in person, I, I, I think that's the real way to learn. But people are trying to more and more, I feel like, shorten that time period. And so you see a lot of, you know, a lot of schools going online. We have an online presence. So do you. And so I, I'm wondering, like, what kind of a blend? Because I really think that there's going to still be um, an opportunity for both things to exist. But also, like, what do you think is a normal timeline, right? So to give you an example, I think a Rockwell engineer right out of college is trained for, I think, six months before he's sent out to the field. Um, but in, in your experience, I guess, like how long does it take to teach maybe a double E uh, PLC and HMI and controls, um, you know, as a whole? So I guess well, like a few questions into one. So. so a contrast here, uh, um, a typical maintenance guy, the classes from automation training are four days. Uh, the first day you do some hardware stuff, going to talk about what that is. The second day you're doing probably bit logic, which can go slow or fast depending on how much people know about electricity. But usually, you know, people are just learning how to fix things more than anything else. Then you maybe get into timers, counters, but it's scan. Um, I, I tell people right at the beginning of those classes, you will be comfortable with the software in four days, right? At the end of the class, but you will not be a programmer. Sometimes right. you get guys that are engineers and they truly do want to learn to program. 
the maintenance guys, they have to create timers and counters so that they can modify them and even troubleshoot their own program. They know what it's like to type things in and change things, but they're usually not, uh, they're not going to program things. They don't know how to originate their own logic. The engineers, by the third day, maybe you may have a mixture. You may have maintenance guys and engineers. The engineers, you kind of have to throw some of your own stuff out there. The problems aren't necessarily in the book. They're not, they're not writing original code. So I have to give them a little extra side thing to keep them occupied. Even then, um, they will not be programmers in four days. Now, some of them, such as the people that I have here in this class today, they have already been through college where they took PLCs, which back when I went to college, PLCs weren't part of the curriculum. And you, you might have one, but it was an old PLC three or something. And you'd spend the whole semester just getting it up and doing anything, right? And then maybe wire a couple things in, do some simple stuff. Nowadays, they have very elaborate hands-on equipment in a lot of these schools, uh, in the universities, the tech schools, all that. So the people that I'm teaching for like an NTH class, they've been through one to two semesters of PLCs. They are not programmers. They, they, they learn timers, counters, whatever, but they did it an hour at a time, one day a week or two days a week or whatever it is. And they work a little bit hands-on. Um, they get done with that school and they go to an internship at NTH where they, they use the videos that I provided to NTH. They watch a live class that I did for Dexcom out in California. It was five days and it's probably eight hours of recorded video of just me uh, helping the Dexcom guys troubleshoot little conveyor equipment, little demos that we had. So truly hands-on stuff at that point. And so by the time these interns get here, they have had, I would guess, uh, maybe a couple hundred hours of hands-on experience with PLCs. So they're ready for we're going to write a program. As a matter of fact, they, their internship project, uh, they have two. They start out with RS Logics 500 and they do this simple conveyor with a pusher um, mm -hmm. and, and just reject parts. If the part's laying down, it's detected and you have to kick it off. And then if it's standing up, you let it pass. Uh, it's got a little bin that you remove. If, if there's a, the bin is full, then it won't let any more pass. If you put parts too close to each other back to back, you know, you don't want to let one go through. So right. they test them, make sure they can get through that before they ever get to my class here. Um, then they build their own control panel. So they have to learn how to uh, do controls. And what I see on the wall behind you is a bunch of different PLCs. What they've built is at least 50 different platforms. Everything from Modicon to Mitsubishi to building controllers, right? You would have a building control system doesn't even program and ladder but they do the same uh, conveyor application with whatever their platform is. Then they uh, do the same thing with an HMI with Factory Talk View, uh, a little panel view 700 and a control logics. So by the time they've gotten to this class, they've done those three things. And so they're ready to really originate programs. And that's when we start talking about like the contents of my book, here's an input routine, here's an auto sequence, here's how they work. Um, here's an outputs routine. Here's faults. You know, they've already kind of done that, but it was very simple on this conveyor. And then we just, it's different every time we do it here. So like this project, this is from a, a student that I have in my automation academy. We just adopted this. Um, but it takes, you know, to really be a programmer like these guys, that's going to be their job. They're going to get out 
uh, they'll have a year of experience and they'll send them out with somebody possibly and doing, you know, some kind of an integration job. Uh, within two to three years, they'll be sent out on their own and they'll right. go work at the machine builder and they'll, they'll still probably be under somebody's supervision. But by the time they've got five to 10 years of drawing things, debugging panels, building machines, I would say at that time, I would call you a programmer because you've done 10 years of hands-on with 150 machines. Um, but yeah. until then, you know, I, I wouldn't, I see people put together projects, right, in plants with uh, little conveyors and pushers and things like that. And some of the logic is just convolute spin, you know, they just keep scabbing stuff on until it works, which is okay until ha somebody has to fix it or until mm -hmm. it gets so complicated because they added other modules. Um, oddly enough, if you go look in programs across the country in automotive plants, process plants, whatever, you will see a lot of similarities in the programs. There is no real book on the, the way to do it, but there is a way to do it that almost everybody follows, right? Um, it's just natural to take all your faults and put them in one routine, right? There's nobody that says to do that, but that's what everybody does. Uh, I mean, you learn pretty quickly, right? To, on that point, if you if you walk onto a job and you see that the faults are scattered all over the place and then, you know, sent to your yeah. main routine wherever, and it becomes like very challenging for you and you'll learn pretty quickly that you should be doing it that way. It's it's a trial by fire, I would say personally, but yes, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, so when you see this stuff scattered, you know, this was maybe done by uh, a maintenance guy that went out on his own, became an electrician, right? And is working for the local machine shop to put something together that works. And that's very common on some of these smaller, like Pokeyoke machines or whatever. If these sensors are all made, then release the part because it's been built correctly, right? Right. Um, you, you'll see a lot of those kind of things. Oddly enough, you'll also see that in some OEM equipment. And I think the reason for that is, like take a packaging machine company, uh, for instance, you are not going to rewrite the program for packaging machines. You're gonna probably build one or two models and then you're gonna build the same thing over and over again. So the guy that put that together was probably not a super experienced programmer unless it's a big packaging machine company. And even then, the guy who goes and works for that company, he's gonna run out of challenges after they built the first machine because he's not writing any new programs, right? So that's why in a lot of those programs, you don't necessarily find the organization that you'll find in, a, in an automotive plant where they, you know, or Procter & Gamble or some of those people where there is just so many different kinds of machines built by big professional machine builders. So there's, uh, and that's where you get into the way this, this looks normal. Now, sometimes those maintenance guys, they work in a plant and they saw a hundred programs and they program like they saw, and that'll be a pretty good program, right? And they mm -hmm. went to work for a uh, packaging machine builder or whatever, and they wrote a pretty good organized program, but that's somewhat rare. Um, right. Palletizer manufacturers, well, hard to write a palletizer program, right? That's a lot of moving boxes and organization. You have to have good visualization. Those are usually written pretty well. Um, big, you know, bottling plant uh, machines, bottle blowers and things like that. Big complicated machine. You can't have an inexperienced guy writing that. But some of the smaller things that are a, simple, a car wash, you know, doesn't take much to program a car wash. As a matter of fact, I think that's a college project, standard college project now, right? So, um, sometimes you'll see weird programs in there where they did scatter, you know, they put 28 faults in 14 routines you know, <laughs> scattered around. So if you had to debug that, eh, it's kind of tough. Yeah. 
Yeah. But I think that's the reality of the industry, though, because a lot of, um, again, in my experience, programmers or engineers and automation in general, like don't get the opportunity, I feel, to design things from scratch, right? Like until they reach maybe that like seven, 10 year mark, like you said, in general, you, if you go into like a plant environment, you're going to make like small tweaks here and there, but you're typically not going to, you know, like execute entire projects, of course, unless you bring in some like very custom equipment and that third party is either unable to do it or for whatever reason, like you have to write code, but typically you won't be doing like from scratch. You will be either given, you know, here's the current system. Can we add this, this, and this? Can we create like a new HMI screen? And so you're adding to a system versus maybe doing from scratch, which I think like really takes those years of experience and being able to have seen, you know, like a pal enough palletizers in action to be able to program one the way it should be, right? Because um, like at the end of the day, it needs to work like clockwork with uh, usually like 95 plus percent reliability. So it, it cannot just be written by, you know, the intern that you've hired over the summer. It becomes like a very complex and, and, and a challenging process, even though there's other machines out there, right? But right. No, for sure. Uh, we got a, we've got a question from No Man. Have you ever trained PMs? I'm not sure if that's product managers or I'm assuming project managers or IT folks. And maybe he's uh, referencing that in the sense that um, I, I'm assuming transitioning into automation from those two fields. Is that something that you've worked with and what was your experience maybe? Sure. Um, so we get project managers um, from Dexcom and West Pharmaceuticals. Um, what I find is they're usually pretty smart people that can easily trans transition, but they're missing um, some of the technique. Depends on what kind of engineering school they went to. If they're like a business person that went into project management, um, you know, they may not know the full. They have a general idea of electricity, but they're missing some of the little details. Like, like uh, they don't know what a PNP or NPN transistor is. Therefore, when you start talking sinking and sourcing sensors, they don't really get the electrical part of it. But if you're going to be a, a, a project guy, right, you have to be able to do the physical part. You have to debug things and understand why the sensor that you hooked up is not working, right? It's not making, changing state or anything like that. So I kind of have to do the extra training there. Maybe it's a little handout or maybe it's in a little electrical diagram with some keys and they don't need to necessarily know solid state theory, but they do need to know what the names of those things are and kind of what they're doing. And they need to know what voltage and current are. And they need to know the basics of Ohm's law. Um, they need to know some math. Sometimes I get guys that know business math, but they don't know really engineering math. Uh, but yet in, in a PLC, most of your stuff is math. It's moving numbers around and it's doing mathematical operations on them, scaling, right. things, doing P and ID or not P and ID, PID loops. Uh, that's an art in itself uh, that even people with a lot of experience sometimes go get a special guy to go do. So um, sometimes they don't have the background, but it's absolutely possible because a project manager is smart. Uh, an IT guy right, is usually very smart. Sometimes you have to uh, change the IT guy's uh, method of doing things. Like I see a lot of things on the internet now about structured text. Great. IT guys know structured text. Why? Because they learned C sharp and they learned uh, Python and things like that in school. Yep. But in industry, even if you don't like ladder logic, even if you think that it's simple, right? Uh, it's what is in the plant. And, and it is what control logics in particular, which is probably 
Allen Bradley is probably 70% of the US market. So if you don't, don't like ladder logic, too bad. You have to learn it, um, right? And you, you can use your structured text, but you are not going to go into Ford and persuade them to write all their code in structured text. It's just not going to happen. So you got to deal with what is. There are five PLC programming languages, and you need to know them all uh, to some degree, but you need to know the one that you're going to use most of the time the best, right? Mm -hmm. Which still in this country is ladder. That's what you're going to need to know. So IT guys probably have a good feel for the structured text, but disabusing them of the fact that everything should be written in C Sharp or Python, or that you should use Arduino controllers to do PLC work, um, good luck. Don't, don't argue with Ford or Procter & Gamble or any of the big companies. You won't win. Right? You'll just be working somewhere else. So, it's good um, that you, you've mentioned this. And as you started making that point, we had a question come in. So the question is, do you guys program in ladder, block, or structured text? Or do you use all of them and why? Uh, the person also said, I only program in ladder and use structured text for indirect addressing and for loops. So I'm curious, I guess, like Frank... I, I guess I can answer that myself too, but what are your thoughts on the different languages? Like, could you give us some examples too of where you would find like one versus the other? I guess not the, not the ladder logic. Sure. Um, so ladder logic, you can absolutely do loops in. That's not a problem, but there's a technique to doing it, right? Um, it's an advanced technique. So I don't recommend it to anybody who hasn't done a whole lot of ladder logic programming. Uh, structured text is not so much for indirect addressing. Alan Bradley has a very excellent way of doing indirect addressing by just using arrays and putting uh, tags in the arrays and doing indirect that way. Siemens has the same thing in TIA portal. The older Siemens, you must do it in, and it's not structured text, it's statementless. Um, one of the languages in, in uh, PLC programming is something called instruction list. That's one of the five languages. Every PLC has instruction list, even Alan Bradley. If you ever double click on your rung, you will get a text version of the rung. That's their version of instruction list and they call it ASCII mnemonics, right? It's just a text description of the rung. Alan Bradley, you, you can't really program in it and you wouldn't want to, right? Siemens, if you are German, you learn statement list first. You do not learn ladder maybe at all. You learn statement list and you type everything in statement list and it'll do things ladder can't do. So indirect addressing using pointers in step seven, you must use statement list. There is no ladder form of indirect addressing. So you're stuck with it. Structured text itself. If I'm dealing with a database, I would use structured text to do SQL operations. But my question there would be, why would I do that in a PLC? Why wouldn't, right? You don't have a database in a PLC. Right? You, don't, you don't have SQL in, P, in a PLC, mm -hmm. so I wouldn't probably do that. I would probably put all of that in, in structured text in Ignition. Right? And I would actually write, uh, not structured text, but I would use SQL. Right? Or I would use uh, Python or, or Jython as it, as it is right? in, in Ignition. And I would write that and deal with the, the database stuff over here. If I'm using data tables and in indirect addressing, again, Siemens statement list, STL, is definitely the way to go. Uh, in Allen Bradley, uh, I've used, I've had to use structured text. If you want to do loops, it's probably easier. I do not want to use uh, uh, just basic logic, bit banging. It takes, you know, five lines of code, something, you know, to do something that's two contacts long in, in ladder. So why would I choose ladder? 
Well, Alan Bradley's geared around ladder. It just is. I can do anything in ladder that anybody can probably do in structured text or function block or whatever. But I've seen plants, for instance, I do a lot of work for Bendix and Bendix uses um, um, not SCL, um, SFC, sequential function charts, mm -hmm. which is kind of that fifth unusable or, or un, un, less usable thing. Uh, it has steps and transitions and what I, what they have, for instance, all their faults, it scans through all the steps. And if there's not a fault, it goes to the next step. If there's not a fault, it goes to the next step. And then when it gets in between the faults, it branches off and it says, okay, you're, when you went through this transition, you had a fault here. So I'm going to branch off here and I'm going to hold. Mm -hmm. Sequential function charts are very good for uh, sequences, right? If you're going to do right. a sequence yep. of operations. For but recipes, again, I, I found them, I've seen them a lot in like recipe management, right? Because you have like steps, yeah. like very defined, like we add this, then we mix, then we add another thing that we mix, then we like transfer, then we heat. Sure, yeah. sure. Sequential anything. Now, because I've got, I've been doing this for about 30 years now at this point with ladder, uh, it started out on the slicks and control logics is just awesome to do those kinds of things. UDTs, transfer giant structures around as recipes. Uh, I do all my sequences, either bit or step sequences. Why? Because the customer tells me to. You mm -hmm. know, Ford says, you will use this kind of sequence. You will use our template. It will be ladder and you will use this. So I don't have the option to jump out and use structured text, even if I wanted to. Um, cases where I've had to use structured text. Uh, there was one case where I needed to do 150 iterations of something in one scan. Um, I, I can't easily do that in ladder. And part of the reason is, Imagine putting a counter inside of a loop and turning on a bit. Well, you have to make that bit go off and then on again. You can't use a one shot because you're within the same little uh, loop. So that didn't work very well. So I did, I created a little uh, structured text routine that that's what it did. It looped 150 times. I wanna say it did it in about three milliseconds. So it didn't add much to the scan time. If I would have, I had a 50 millisecond scan time and if I would have had to do 150 times 50 milliseconds, I would have been at two or three seconds to accomplish a bunch of data manipulation that I just didn't have another way to do. So I've jumped out and do that, done that when I have to, but I would never want to try to program a whole machine that way. And again, I would box it up. It, it, you can't mix ladder and structure text in the same routine anyway. So I've built a routine to accomplish that job. Uh, I might wrap it inside of an add-on instruction, right? Uh, just, mm -hmm. just can it which same thing in Siemens function blocks. People don't realize that, but the Siemens function block is an AOI in every way, uh, except it's actually better. I, I told the students in here this week, I said, you know, you guys are programming this AOI. You have to do it offline. Uh, you have to, if you're doing it online, you got to go import it or something. And then if it doesn't work, you got to delete everything about it, re-import it and, and make it work. Um, the function block, everything can be done online. I can do it while the machine's running, change my function blocks, re-download it and change it. And they've been doing that since the 90s. So uh, it's, it's not a new thing, even though, you know, Alan Bradley add-ons a new thing, but function blocks are forever. They've been around for a long time. Uh, but I do see more people. I think people like structured text because that's what they learned in college. So they, they knew Python and they knew uh, C Sharp. That's what they learned. They were good at it. And they said, that's what I want to do in PLCs. Not because it's better or it's different or whatever. If you've been doing ladder for a long time and you've learned complicated ladder techniques, ladder will do everything those other languages will do. 
with a few right. exceptions. Like I said, if I got to do 150 of something, but I honestly, I could have passed that to ignition and let ignition do it 150 times. I, I didn't have to do that. Right. Um, so yeah. it's a matter of choice to a degree, but yeah. No, I, I agree with you. I think like it's uh, it's underestimated to some extent what ladder can do when you've been brought up on those languages. And even I guess like myself, I still think in like C++ more than, you know, what I do in ladder. Like, so when I type in certain logic, I always in my head translate back to what I had learned in that language so that it makes sense to me, right? Like even the for loops, I picture them more in C++ than I picture them in ladder logic, even though like I've done, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of them, but it, it's still kind of, I guess, the the mindset. So it's like whatever you've been taught is what you're going to retain. But I, I agree with you. I, I think like each one of those languages has its place. And I think it's better to know them rather than not. And they make things much easier, like you said, like in sequences, right? Like you can organize it. And then someone who's looking at that visually, it's better. And it's obviously a lot more intricate but it's going to be a lot more powerful than you know the usual like move the number so it's like move one then like it's done like move two like that becomes very complicated uh or i guess like very complicated as you get more steps and you just get like lost in that specific like ladder sequence versus uh sequential function charts if it becomes complex it's very easy to see how things are flowing and same for uh for function blocks like for me personally like anything analog makes a lot more sense even like PID loops, right? Like that makes sense a lot more in function blocks. Obviously you can have the basic construction and ladder logic too and make it work, but it just visually seems to be a lot more like condensed and you see where things are coming in, in, in the instruction at least. Yeah, and people are boxing things up now, right? That, that's what the AOI and the function block are anyway. They can be in any language. You can put uh, a, you know, SCL inside of a, um, a function of some kind, and the add-on is the Alan Bradley version of the function block. Um, I see, for instance, people that like LabVIEW. Uh, there are a lot of people that that's what they use in college or they use it in a lab and things like that. They tend to gravitate toward function block, right? Because they, they know what those AND and OR blocks are and timers and things like that. And they're, it's a linear this way program instead of a linear this way program. And they may like that. And that's okay. Uh, safety systems, right? A lot of the safety PLCs lend themselves to that because you have dual inputs. So you have a block that has both channels of the e-stop in it, and it takes care of all that timing and switching thing for safety PLCs. Again, function block, it lends itself to that. It's harder to program it in ladder. Um, but there are good methods of doing it in ladder. And I can, for instance, sequences, I choose sequences in ladder always. And part of it is I have a method of writing it that is very clear to people that are reading it. And I mm -hmm. separate things. And that's the way uh, people don't realize this, but you go to the JR automations and the, uh, the ATCs or the ATSs, which are biggest custom machine builders in the country. They're doing $100 million systems. They're writing everything in ladder and they're using sequences with the numbers uh, that you talked about. Some of them can be confusing, especially if they start calling it a state machine. Um, they'll start making up states. And there's a, there's a famous book out by a college professor that wrote a big state machine book. The problem is he made it up and you, you know there's already a way to do this in industry and most of the guys that you go into the plant they know how to read that stuff and if you organize it well and you comment things well then it's oh, for sure yep. you know, yeah 10 20 30 40 which it goes back to basic programming right we had line numbers and you go for 100 to 200 to 300 and if you needed a line in between you'd put 250 and then you put 260 right and you 
those basic lines, that's just what the sequences are. It was the same kind of concept. Yep. Dave, what yeah, are your thoughts? Uh, absolutely. You've been quiet this whole time. You guys have just been going, like, I think that <laughs> Vlad, you had like a 12 minute introduction and then Frank caught us up on his entire life story. And as like the last six hours of my life that I've spent talking to Frank over the course of like two and a half phone calls, it, it feels like this just, uh, if this is just a conversation that can absolutely go on forever. But no, so I, I had a question talking about training, uh, kind of following up on Noman's question about training PMs or IT folks, and you had talked about how you would train some of them in classes. Uh, I mean, it, it feels like we are certainly getting close to a talent crunch on the, uh, on the OT side, that there are not enough engineers in order to do the work that it seems like is going to be demanded, which, uh, which is a positive compared to about a year ago when it seemed like there was an awful lot of those folks out of work. But it, it feels like we're going to need more people uh, to upskill or, or to learn how to become part of this industry. And obviously, Frank, you can't train them four interns at a time. I think it would take an awful lot of, I think it would take an awful lot of weeks training them four at a time or even eight or 10 at a time to, uh, to get there. Where do you see, where, where do you see the future of this industry? Do you think we're going to find more like it folks who are going to become more of a part of the OT side? What, what's kind of your thoughts and projections on that? So part of the new thing is all these junior colleges and even one of the students in here in high school had PLC mechatronics classes. Uh, that didn't exist, right? We had auto mechanics, right? When I was growing up or shop, right? You didn't have anything like that. I'm seeing a lot more of that for the younger people. So there are plenty of younger people. What they don't have is they don't have the experience on real machinery. Mm -hmm. Companies like Automation NTH are hiring, um, you know, four to eight uh, interns per semester. And the reason is that all the other guys with all the experience are contracting. They're out yep. either working for the big machine builders, writing complicated programs, or they're contracting to them. And they're too expensive for an engineering company to hire. So they said, we're going to train our own, right? We're going to give them six months of training the way we do things. We're going to put them in the panel shop. We're going to do all that kind of stuff. Um, there are a lot of human beings out there. And I think a lot of this can be learned. It is no different than McDonald's to a degree. You can learn how to build panels with a form, you know, by formula. When you get done learning how to build panels and wiring, wiring them, then you can do some machine startups and you can watch other people taking an existing program that's already been written and debugging everything and figuring out where all the sensors come into it, right? And, and what's working and, and doing that. You do that for a year and then you move into, uh, hey, I, I need you to go change that timer. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it's, okay, hey, uh, you know that conveyor thing? I want you to copy that conveyor routine into another conveyor routine and call it conveyor two. And we're going to add it mm -hmm. onto this. It's not that hard. And it's, it can be very formulaic if you have templates and methods of doing things. And now what's happening is people are starting to can some of those objects. It's very object-oriented uh, becoming that way. And you can simply take that object and feed different things into it and make it do what you want to. Um, so, but there is a gap. There's a space in between those new guys coming up that have the hands-on mechatronic stuff and the old hands, which I would say are 50 and older now, uh, that, have, that have been around for a long time. Now, I don't see a lot of guys that are in the late 30s and early 40s, probably with, with that kind of machine building experience. Um, so I'm not sure 
age-wise what's going to happen. But I think the young guys are either going to have to learn through these on-the-job training things. Back to what we were talking about, uh, there are a lot of uh, are a lot of OEMs in this area, manufacturers that have their own machine building companies in-house, mm-hmm. right? Or their own integrators in-house, or their mm-hmm. own uh, IT OT combinational guys that work in ignition or something like that. Um, those guys, right? Denso Manufacturing out here, Nissan. We have a big Nissan plant here. They have an awesome training program. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you come in and what you're going to learn now is their kind of equipment, but can you transition from the Nissan equipment down to the Volkswagen plant in Chattanooga? Sure. They're both automotive. They do things a little different, maybe a different PLC platform. But if you know, you know, Omron and Alan Bradley out of the Nissan plant, you can go work on the Siemens down there. You may have to take a class to learn from somebody that has done both, right? You kind of, what is the difference between an Alan Bradley and a, a you know, Cologic? the TIA portal. Oh, well, you know, that's similar. They both have this. They both have this. Oh, this is different, right? So you're going to need those kind of classes. Can that be done by video? Sure. can be recorded. Uh, there's no reason not to do that. Some of these places are simply putting people also through training videos and making them take little quizzes and you check these boxes, much like uh, inductive university, the ignition thing, right? Um, If you can pass all those things and you're answering those questions and you've been through their hand grading of some of the tests and things, some of these companies like NTH do the same thing. They hand check all of the students programs and, and, you know, their functionality test. They say, does this work? Let's put these things close together and knock them over. And what happens when you hit the e-stop in the middle of when you're running this by the time you're done with it, Hey, you know, a year or two of experience, you're kind of ready to go out in the field and do this. So I, what I'm seeing is more people training their own people, bringing them up from the bottom and not hiring the existing people that already do that because they're getting too expensive. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the contractors are expecting to make, you know, a hundred and some dollars an hour, and then they want to transition into working for an engineering firm and engineering firms only charging in a hundred and some dollars an hour, right? So they can't mark mm-hmm. up the contractor speed. They'll just hire their own guys. Right. You know? Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, I, I appreciate that, Frank. I, I have one slight transition as we are running a short of time, which is what we do every week. And I, Frank, I think I told you that uh, maybe six months ago when Vlad and I were talking, we said we'll do this once a month for maybe 30 minutes. And now we're running every Wednesday and somewhere around the hour mark. I'm like, oh, Vlad, we have somehow managed to uh, manage to make it to the hour. Um, but but no. So um one thing that Vlad had pointed out that he wanted to talk about was work-life balance. And one of the, we had an interesting series, like series of messages that we traded, I think towards the beginning of the year, when I was down in South Florida and you were talking about the work that you do down in South Florida. And I remember seeing some pictures of some rocks in the back of a pickup truck while you were in maybe Northern Nevada, uh, a a few weeks ago. Um, Can you talk about like work-life balance and and your philosophy on that? And I think you said that you generally don't fly, but you do a lot of driving. Um, No, I I fly too quite a bit. But so when I started my own company, I found myself within the first year working seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I spent the weekends catching up for things I couldn't get done during the week. Um, It took my wife to point that out and say, you know, you work all the time. And I regret doing that now. And I got to a point where I went to work for Wright Industries more or less five days a week. You might be starting up a machine and on site, you might be six, but you always had a day off. 
by the time I left right industries, I was used to that day off. And now I force myself to take at least one day off every week. Also working for yourself, of course, you can schedule your own trips and vacations and things. Uh, I drive to Miami and I drive as far as Philadelphia, Oklahoma City to teach class because I have my own car and I can haul the equipment, the, the trainers and the uh, laptops and things like that. Flying is generally quicker, but it's also became, become a real pain with the TSA stuff. And, and I have to carry two laptops. So, uh, you know, you go through all the check-in and everything. By the time you drive to the airport, get to your location, rent a car and drive somewhere, you might as well have driven anyway. You know, you, you, you've taken a four-hour flight, but you could have driven or four hours of flying and diddling around. You could have driven it in, in 12 hours, you know. Uh, so I'll go up to a thousand miles driving. I've driven to Vermont this year um, and did a class. But when I went to Nevada, obviously I flew. <laughs> right? uh, did a lot of classes for Tesla. Uh, mm -hmm. They're in in the Reno area. Sparks, yeah. Yeah, Southwest is a, a quick flight to Reno, and uh, uh, all my California and Northwest classes I do. Yeah, fly there of course. But but I'll drive if it's up to a thousand miles. I listen to podcasts. I get out and walk on the on the way, and yeah. But work-life balance is critical. I think you need to have hobbies or go see your family or whatever. My kids are all grown up, so I don't have to worry about, you know, all that, that part. But that's very important. Yeah. No, no, I, I love that. So, so Frank, for anyone listening or watching who is, you know, thinking of starting their own company, who may or may not, or who almost certainly will get into that, you're grinding 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and it's eight months before you realize what you're doing. Do you have any like like thoughts or recommendations uh, for them as to how to kind of reframe life and, and maybe what you wish you would have thought about when uh, when you were working uh, seven days a week? Um, well, for instance, some people go to church every Sunday. They're not going to work Sundays. So they're already taking a full day off that way. Mm -hmm. If you do that, I would say taking a Saturday off or most Saturdays off and being with your family is probably an important thing. It's nice to be home every night, but you also have to understand that if you're in the automation business, you will travel. If, mm -hmm. if you're doing anything very serious and you're working on machines, you're going to go where the machine is, right? You can't do that at home. You can't phone it in. Uh, you can't remote. You can remote into equipment for sure, but there's some things, you know, you got to adjust flow controls. You got to, you got to tune servos, whatever you got to do. It's hard to do that, that kind of stuff remotely. So yeah. And that time, the customer's always going to be telling you, you, you need to be working seven days and you get it done, you know, until you, this is done and this is started up. If you can pull it off, just say, I'm sorry, I only work six, take a day off every week. Uh, you need it. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's very important. Right. And I think like people burn out fairly quickly and it's just, uh, it's just the nature I feel of the industry, right? Like once you uh, get competent enough, then you book more jobs than you can, you know, put your time at, and um, one thing, you know, is you're starting to do so many things that all your weekends are booked, all of your like you just get too many things to um, to accomplish, I guess, in that very short time frame. Uh, we got a question from Dave. So um, I guess that ties into one of your most recent webinars, Frank. So Tatsoft. He's, yeah. uh, he's asking if you had a, a chance uh, to look at frameworks from Tatsoft. And I guess my follow-up with that is, I know you've got a customer in Miami. Obviously, I don't know how much you can share what, uh, what choices you're planning to make, but I know you're considering maybe like Ignition versus Tatsoft. Like what are your 
your thoughts maybe from um, what you gathered thus far? So they already have ignition, a big ignition installation in Miami. And his problem is for him to transition to the smaller stuff, they have a new platform that is, I think it's called Perspective. It allows you mm -hmm. to put things on phones and tablets. Yeah, yeah, the web. Uh, yeah. For him to upgrade to that, he's going to have to pay more than his original installation of Ignition was. He's going to have to pay more than the, the server license that he has, which I think he bought for 17 grand talk down, you know, five years ago, and now it's 23. Tapsoft is going to be half of that, and it's going to do all those tablets. But what he's having going to have to do, and this is going to be his decision, he's he's going to be duplicating the functionality of Ignition. Uh, so we've been talking about you know some of Walker Reynolds stuff in the unified namespace. Can you take the Tapsoft and the uh, Ignition and deal with the same SQL database? Of course you can, but what if you're doing them both at the same time? And how do you coordinate all that, right? Um, so he's going to have that decision to make, but if, and he, what he may do is use the existing database, take Tatsoft off to the side, do all the mobile devices with Tatsoft and leave the ignition as it is. That's more than likely what's going to happen. From what I've seen of the Tatsoft software, um, and I've just had demos from uh, Marcos Tacolini and things like that, it looks like it does everything ignition does, right? In a slightly different way, there's a learning curve there too. Yep. Um, so how long does it take to learn that? And they don't have an inductive university yet. So you're going to have to somewhat wing it, look at all the manuals and figure out what you're doing, but there's nothing like having a project in front of you to make you learn something, right? You will figure yep. out how to do it, right? Here's the goal. Uh, here's the SQL database. Have at it. You know, let's bring all this and make our, our tablet screens and our phone screens and make it all work. So that's probably what we're going to do. I just think the cost savings of making the, the mobile devices taps off. These are all the tablets that are on the, uh, the uh, fork trucks and the people mm -hmm. that are doing all the pallet, you know, dealing with pallets, okay. yeah. moving uh, things around. And then the phones, right? It's nice to be able to go into your phone and look at the status of a machine. Mm -hmm. And I think that may be accessing the data that's already in the database. We don't need to create anything new. We just go grab it. So interestingly, that unified namespace thing, we kind of just did that automatically. Uh, we had no reason to spread things around and we just wanted to deal with all the material in the same location. So we didn't create multiple things. We didn't bring in other vendors. We just made up how to do it as we went along. Uh, so that's kind of how that thing evolved. But yeah, we'll probably be using that. That's an interesting use case. Sorry to interject. That's an interesting use case. I guess I see that more and more manufacturers are picking up you know, on mobile technologies, but... I feel like there's quite a bit of training involved in, you know, training up your, even like you said, forklift drivers and maybe operators to look on, you know, like their phone or like a mobile device to see the status of the machine and maybe respond to some, some of those notifications. But I, I personally see a lot more of that, you know, as we move forward, because it is a native device that pretty much everybody has. And if the company issues an iPhone or an Android device, then even better, right. Then you'd be able to like notify your people much faster and you have access to it. You, you don't have to go to a physical HMI to see what's going on with your machine. So yeah, if you're on a, a, it, truck, on a dock, you don't have a, you don't have a computer out there. You know, there's right. nowhere to even plug it in. So you have to be mobile. Um, yeah. Now that's really cool. That's interesting. Yeah. And you'll have to keep us up to date with the direction you guys go, Frank. I have never seen a facility that has both ignition and, uh, and a Tathsoft application up and running. Uh, Dave would probably know if you guys would be kind of one of the original 
uh, folks to have both of those systems kind of running in parallel. I'd be interested to know how they uh, how they compare head to head and and how it works. Uh, yeah, so you'll you'll certainly have to, uh, to keep us up to date with that. And Dave is in the comments talking about uh, they've got workshops for clients learning the platform um, as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I look forward to using it. And and again, I think the cost savings is the first thing um, probably that attracts us to it. And then the fact that it has the mobile stuff already built in, mm -hmm. it's .NET based instead of being Java based. Um, so that's a little more native. Uh, uh, you know, native Microsoft kind of world, which is like it or not, Alan Bradley's on Microsoft, right? That's, that's pretty much what it's going to be is Windows forever, I'm sure. So um, that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. Which is a little frustrating, but it is what <laughs> it is, I guess. But I, I think like Dave, to your point, like just like any other migration project, right? Like you have this uh, state where both systems are in place, right? Like Frank mentioned, maybe they'll take some features of Tatsoft that they really need and implement them. And once they get up to speed, then they can start thinking like, well, in the next like three months, maybe we'll convert this other area to Tatsoft. So I'm, I'm assuming at some point it will be maybe a blend, but then it will merge into one platform just for ease of maintenance. But of course that depends on, you know, the cost to convert and like what that's really going to entail. But um yeah, it's uh... and Juan Pablo already knows Ignition really, really well, and that's right. part of what's going to probably keep him on that platform. I don't particularly care, so I mostly uh, create pretty screens for him. That's that's kind of I'm much more on the front end. He deals with a lot of the database things. I write simple code. I deal with the PLCs. I deal with all the any changes that have to be made on the plant floor. I do all that, and then he mostly deals with the database. But he's got everything from human resources uh, stuff to all his supplies tracking, incoming and outgoing pallets, shipping, everything is in this database. So truly unified namespace for every aspect of the plan. Yeah. When you say unified namespace, to me, that's still, you know, you have one SQL database, but uh, I guess maybe it, it, it has a lot more meaning to some folks in the industry. But to me, it's just you're gathering all of your data into like one single repository in a sense, right? If you want to. Yes, find but that. there's also the other side and we haven't worked this out yet because I'm not I'm not Walker Reynolds. So I don't know what he means by it, but I would like right. to be able to, for instance, if I change something in the SQL database that it goes back and changes the tag name in the controller or adds a tag or whatever, that kind of thing can be done. Mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily in real time, but there are ways to keep track of that kind of thing. And like I said, I have records of, I have all the PLC stuff. I can't go in there and necessarily automatically change it, but you can import and export tags. You could have all that stuff, uh, you know, created ahead of time, ready to change the tag name if you need to, or add the tag names in the PLC as needed. Typically mm -hmm. you're browsing for existing tags anyway, right? But if you build a new structure and for whatever reason, I think Marcos Tacalini said uh, you in ignition, I believe you can't do a UDT of UDTs that it's a difficult thing to do. And you can't drill into things like optimized data blocks, but they're working on it. So they know that it exists and they're planning on implementing that when that happens, all of a sudden, um, yeah, the, the sky's the limit. We can use any, anything from anywhere. We don't have to break it apart and make it in the format we need it to be. Yeah. Right. Gentlemen, I think uh, maybe time for the last few questions, Dave, um, I, before we wrap up. 
I mean, I, I think that uh, I think that we did a great job, Frank. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. I feel like right. any question that I ask is going to drill us down another 35 minutes of rabbit hole, yes. which is about exactly where I was when I asked the last question, saying I know we're getting close on time. So let's let's attempt to be respectful, at least uh, mildly for uh, for everyone who is watching live, for everyone who is listening. Um, I will let Vlad wrap it up with the promise that we will have you back on. And as the Mastering the Machine webinars uh, come out, we will certainly go ahead and promote those. You do a fantastic job. Vlad and I both enjoyed uh, being on when we when we were on and you guys do a fantastic uh, you guys do a fantastic job drilling into questions and and anyone who hasn't watched it should go back and watch Vlad's episode in which Frank digs to the very beginning of Vlad's blog. Uh, yeah, blog talking about some of his hobbies and just yeah. see the look in his eyes when Frank asks him about, about this specific hobby. But but I don't want to ruin it for anyone that hasn't watched it, Frank. I was surprised the the level of detail that you went through to research. I was scared. The background. It's, it's pretty I was cool. scared what Frank was going to come up with. Lad. But, um, I mean, there, there's a lot of interesting episodes, too. You know, like we talked about, um, I wanted to mention this, uh, but didn't want to cut you off at the same time. You had a very interesting student that came in and learned pretty much like all that there is to automation. And I, I was very surprised in that episode as well, because it was someone who was working for, um, was it? A, I think it was like air purifiers or air filters company, right? And he decided to go off and design everything from scratch, including like a full panel. He did it all in CAD. He programmed the PLCs. He selected the devices uh, with your guidance, of course. But, you know, to the point that we were talking about earlier, like how it, how difficult or how challenging it is maybe to learn or tra transition fields, uh, I think that conversation is extremely relevant, right? Like if you, um, you see someone who has done exactly that and like there's a full conversation of like challenges and roadblocks and things he had to learn along the way. So I, I think there's a few episodes that I've particularly was like extremely impressed with, but we're going to post all the links. I've already posted them a couple of times on LinkedIn and YouTube. If you want to either connect with Frank, reach out to him with additional questions. Uh, I've also posted links to his website where you can learn more about what he does. There's also, uh, we didn't discuss the books at all because we ran out of time, but Frank has multiple books. Um, I believe like, I guess the easiest place to find them would be Amazon, but you can certainly get them, get access to them through his automation consulting and automation like Academy website. And so like Dave said, I think we'll be back with Frank because we have a lot more questions <laughs> to cover and more things to discuss, but without um, any, I guess, any further delays, we'll thank you again, Frank. Thank you for coming on the show. And thank you, everybody, who's been posting questions. Like I said, there's there's been more questions that have been posted, so feel free to reach out to Frank directly. Uh, but we will be uh, logging off and answering them at another time. Thank you, everyone, again, for watching. Thank you a lot, guys. Thank you, Take guys. Care.